It's 1209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us on a cold Friday afternoon. We are live streaming. You can go to Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. See the first uh, couple segments of the program. I know a number of people participate that way. I, I made this comment to Eric Bilstad and to Steve Scafidi just a couple minutes ago. This, um, If you haven't heard, and we're continuing to follow this story, of course, Wednesday you have the tragic shooting of um, Officer Matthew Rittner, um, tactical squad officer, while executing a search warrant. The man who is responsible for that, his name is out there. Apparently the case is in front of the district attorney's office. They will be making a charging decision. He's in custody now, so my guess is there's there's going to have to be some court appearance at, at some point in, in time to formally charge him. And then on the heels of that, you have this horrible story this morning. A Milwaukee Department of Public Works employee killed Friday morning by a hit-and-run driver on North 17th Street. 54-year-old worker struck about 8.15 this morning uh, in the 1800 block of North 17th Street. Uh, apparently, they, the car was the guy was involved in putting down asphalt. This is according to the authorities. The driver fled from the car, leaving it at the crash scene. Okay, um, they apparently there was a female passenger in the vehicle who was apprehended. So here, here you have you know a, a deal where you have the hit and run driver. Apparently, the guy is obviously aware of what he has done. Decides he's going to flee the scene. I don't know if the car was stolen or or not. But w- I mean, when you think about this. Where does this idiot think he's going? I mean, in all seriousness, you, you've got the car that is at the scene. Now, like I say, I don't know if it's stolen or not. If it's not stolen, you know, it's going to be able to be traced back. You've got the female passenger. So for somebody who thinks that they're going to be able to avoid justice and get away from this, uh, it, it just is not going to happen. And, I mean, I don't know if it would have made any difference if the guy would have stayed and tried to render assistance or whatever. But at some point in time, you look at some of these criminals out here, and you clearly make it worse by running. I am confident that the police will, in fact, catch him. And then, you know, when he's caught, you're going to throw the book at him as you appropriately should. It is another one of these reminders and cautionary tales, though, that when you come upon whether it's public workers who are out there, in this case, I guess the guy's filling potholes or something. That would be my assumption. You know, when it's somebody that's doing that, or whether it's law enforcement officers that have people stopped along the, the roadside or whatever, you've got to give them a wide berth. That That's just it. And if you are involved in an incident, you, you stop and you render assistance and you cooperate with authorities. Running and trying to avoid responsibility never, ever works, and it always makes things worse, period. All right, let's get started. I've got a lot of commentary, a lot of things that we're going to move through relatively quickly on today's program. I want to start by... By talking about this whole blackface thing, and I know we've discussed it from a number of perspectives. Blackface is, of course, the process of white people putting on, you know, facial coloring thing and, and making themselves look black. All right. That that's it. It's history has racial troubles. It goes back to, I mean, the old minstrel shows where you had white performers that would, you know, um, make themselves appear as if they were black. And they do um, in, in oftentimes, you know, performances which were very, very stereotypical. OK, so so that's that's it. Now, blackface has evolved over the years. And I think. In 2019, 
pretty much everybody would agree that, you know, blackface is culturally inappropriate. And there's really no situation where it's appropriate for somebody who is white to appear in blackface. Now, that that might come as sort of a, a, a news flash to some of the late night comedians like uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel, who have apparently appeared themselves in blackface in the rel- in the relatively recent past. But what's happening now? is you have all these stories, and Virginia is, of course, the centerpiece of it, where you have elected officials who have appeared in blackface at different times in their life. There's the story of the governor of Virginia who, in 1984, uh, and he, he says it's not him, after acknowledging that it was, 1984, there's a picture that appears on the governor of Virginia's yearbook page showing that, you know, somebody purportedly to be him, you know, dressed in in blackface. He originally apologized and says he doesn't think it's him. He doesn't know how it got on his yearbook page. But we're having one story after another. The attorney general of the state of Virginia, he's acknowledging that he had appeared in blackface at a certain point in time. There's a, a story about a state representative from Florida who, when he was in high school, like 16 years ago, a, as part of like a homecoming thing, he and his best friend, his best friend was black, he's white, they dressed up as each other and the guy like darkened his skin. And, and so all this stuff is coming out. And now there's a lot of efforts going back and, and looking at, at yearbooks from, from decades ago to try to see if there's examples of, of blackface. You know, one of the stories that I was looking at, you know, there's there's a guy who's another elected official, this time out of Virginia, and, and nobody is alleging that he himself wore blackface, but decades and decades ago, he attended VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, and apparently in their yearbook, there's scenes of a couple other kids that were, you know, in blackface, and this particular politician was the yearbook editor. So now it's like, oh, well, even though you didn't dress in blackface, you knew this whole thing was going on. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this, and and I, I keep wondering whether, as we deal with 2019 sensibilities, where I think, again, most of us would acknowledge that this is inappropriate. Although there's a New York Post poll that's out that says 58% of Americans say it's inappropriate. Hmm. I, 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 you know, I think it's inappropriate, and there's no question about it. But at the same time, I think back, and again, I'm a child of the 70s. I remember being in college in the 1970s, and, you know, we, we would do things, and, and by the way, I've never dressed in blackface, so you don't have to bother, like, scouring your books, trying to find things like that. But I'm trying to think of a situation. I know that there was an organization, I was there, our debate team, we participated in, like, lots of campus activities, and they had things like campus gong shows, you know, where you'd go on, remember the old gong show, and you'd go on and try to, like, do some performance or something, and most of the times you weren't any good and you'd get gonged. And I, I'm, I'm trying to think seriously. Back in the 19- 1970s, and this didn't happen, but if somebody said, okay, this is going to be the act this year, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to do Gladys Knight and the Pips. Gladys Knight just sang the anthem at Super Bowl, huge fan of Gladys Knight. And I'm trying to think if some members of the debate team who were, you know, okay, you guys are going to be the, the Pips, and we're going to have Gladys Knight, and, and somebody said, okay, we're, we're, we're going to put these people in blackface. Now, this is 1977 or 78. Would it have immediately come to me that, oh, gosh, this is awful and racist and this is terrible? Or would the attitude have been in that context, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to make fun of ourselves and, you know, we're going to pretend to be the pips? I, I, 
I, I don't know. Now, if you were talking about would you go to a Halloween party and somebody's in a Ku Klux Klan thing and, and they're there and they've got somebody else who's in blackface with a noose around their neck or something, well, clearly that would be inappropriate. But the idea that, okay, Mr. T is a, a big popular performer in the early 80s and somebody goes uh, to a Halloween costume dressed up in a Halloween party dressed up like Mr. T, including blackface, would I have immediately assumed back then that this is incredibly culturally inappropriate and this is racist, etc.? And my honest answer is I, I don't know. But here's what I want to discuss with you. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are we going too far with this by looking decades ago and, and looking at finding a picture of somebody from their high school yearbook or their college yearbook where, yes, they, they attended, uh, they attended an event or they participated in the gong show and the guy dressed up as, as Michael Jackson, including the, the blackface. All right. And you, you do that in, in 1975 or 1978 or 1980. Is it fair to say that means in 2019, by our current contemporary standards, that means that you must have been a racist in 1975 or 1978 or whatever, and you are incapable of being a governor. You're incapable of being attorney general. You can't be a state representative. Is there a statute of limitations on that type of stuff? And is it fair to judge somebody in 2019 based on something, a costume, for example, they wore in 1975? Can you really say that they were racist? And like I say, there, I, again, you can come up with some examples in 1975 where it, it would clearly be, you know, a racist sort of thing. Again, the best example, you go dressed as a KKK guy and, and you go, you know, with uh, a noose or something like that. Well, of course, that that's everybody should have known that. But the fact that, gee, you're going to dress up as one of Gladys Knight's pips or you're going to dress up as as Michael Jackson and you go to a party, does that automatically mean that 40 years later you need to be disqualified from being able to serve in public life? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Again, we're live streaming. It's Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ 1219. Jeff Wagner. Twelve twenty-two. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Again, we're live streaming Facebook.com slash six twenty WTMJ as well. This whole thing, and I've been following this stuff with the governor of Virginia, and as I've said all week, to me, the, the, the most bizarre aspect of it is the guy at least initially says, "Yeah, that's me. I apologize. I don't. I don't. I'm sorry about that. About being in blackface." And then the next day says, "Well, it's, I don't think it's me. Well, you not, it seems to me you either know you did it or not." But I think uh, now, for our perspective, I mean, okay. So if this guy poses in blackface, or he goes to a party in blackface in the '70s or the early '80s, right? You know, does that mean that he shouldn't be able to serve as governor in 2019? Even if we accept that in 2019, blackface is is unacceptable. We're now more woke on these things. Is is it fair to say, hey, you did something when you were in college in 1979 where maybe there were different standards? 414-799-1620. And that is the issue that I have with this because I, I think there's a lot of people who – all right, maybe we were just being culturally insensitive at the time, 
but you know you dressed up in certain costumes. You went to that costume party dressed as Mr. T, and you didn't you didn't intend there wasn't a racist element to it. It was just hey, Mr. T's this big star. I'm putting on this jewelry. I'm I'm dressing. I'm putting on the fake mohawk, and, and yes, I'm going to put on some I guess blackface because I'm going to the party dressed as Mr. T. Does that mean that you are an evil racist, Linda in Hartford? Linda, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, I am so glad you brought this up because I was starting to think, oh, my goodness, I grew up during the 60s and the 70s, and I was in lots of musicals where I played Asian people. We had to have our faces painted, and in Brigadoon, we had a, you know, Buddha, and he had to paint himself black, and we meant no racist or anything of the type. It was more of an honor Huh. To be and and the same thing with Michael Jackson. I mean, if somebody dresses up like him, it's like they think he's really cool. He can dance good. He can sing. Um, or well, right. Or my example earlier. Okay, you, you're on, you're on a a, comp, a campus gong show, and it's Gladys Knight and the Pips, and so you're right. you're dressed as one of the Pips. It's not that you're making fun of right. like black people. It's more like, hey, you're you're there. People are going to make fun of you because you know you're well, you, you can't of course, dance. And yeah. this is just I wish that. People would have been more honest and said, yeah, I did it, but it was all done in fun and we didn't mean anything by it because you know what? They probably didn't. And like you said, if he would have, you know, had the Ku Klux Klan with something around his neck, right. you know, next lessons, that's a whole different situation. But we did these things and we meant honor to them well, or, or you did you, you what or it wasn't an evil intent i mean i'll give you no. an example that you know you were talking about like native americans i can remember going to halloween parties and this this was not me but i can remember that you know sometimes you would have uh, guys and gals that would come for example dressed up like as the lone ranger and tonto okay that, right. that that's what the costume was it wasn't intended as some sort of racist slur against native americans it was just we're going to a halloween party and it's the right. lone ranger and tonto you know it's and the girl scouts when i was eight years old we all dressed up like indians and we had like we made little you know feathered hats and we colored our skin and you know, to be more looking like redskins, but we meant no intent of racism, and that's why when this has all come down, I thought, what's wrong with me? We did this when we were that age. Well, well, As a matter of fact, in my yearbook, I wasn't dressed up, but we had musicals and people colored faces, and we didn't think anything of it. It was never intended. Right, exactly. Thank, right. Thanks for calling. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. But right, that, that's it. it. It doesn't have that that intent. And so now, what you have, and this is this is what is going on now, and it's with the age of the internet. People are consciously scouring. You know, the, the people's pasts looking for old high school yearbooks or old, you know, again, old college yearbooks or whatever, trying to find something like this. And I mean, look, I, I, I understand if somebody did this six months ago, I mean, given our new sensibilities about this, I, I, I think that that's a fair question. But at the same time, if it's something that was done in 1979 and it was done in a benign fashion, and I'm not talking about the guy that's the member of the Ku Klux Klan, I'm talking about, you know, the, the college kid that goes, he and his date go, you know, dressed as the Lone Ranger and Tonto or Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. Remember, that was one of the big things that one of the WrestleManias. So you go dressed like that. I mean, th- does that mean that you are racist and that you can't respond? 414-799-1620. Joe in Jackson. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, 
I have to disagree with your last call a little bit because I don't know if she realizes that picture did involve a person in the KKK outfit. Right, right, with the governor of Virginia, yeah. Right. I mean, so, yeah, when we're talking about a matter of sensitivity and stuff, I think what people have to realize is the same thing with the N-word. I mean, there is such hurt attached to that kind of thing. There's so much hurt that I don't think as a white person you or I could understand how deep that hurt is is and to ignore that and to act as if it doesn't exist is totally well intense. but but that's not but but let's talk about the reaction so uh, is it fair though by by 2019 standards to judge somebody by again we'll use my example you go to the halloween party dressed as mr t in the early 1980s where there's lots of people that are going dressed as mr t is it fair to say hey i've got this picture you dressed as mr t in 1981 now it's 35 38 years later you can't be the governor or you know you can't be on television or whatever because you have to be a racist but the thing is is that it's, 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 it's exactly that we're calling it 2019 standards for people of color, this has always been the standard well, of what's hurt, hurt, hurtful and stuff like that. I, I see. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's my question. See, I don't. Sure? Yeah, yeah, right. No, I'm not sure that in 1978, you know, you had people of color that would see, hey, um, some somebody's gone to a Halloween party dressed as Mr. T. Oh, that that's offensive. They're mocking black people. I I I'm not sure at all that Maybe that's the standard. Them. Well, well that, that, thanks for call. I think that's fair enough. Thanks for call. I mean, I, I think that's fair enough. But I, I do think that there has been there, there has been an evolution of societal standards when it comes to those types of things, and I, and I appreciate that. But no, I, I I just I also think you have to look at intent, and you know what what is the intent that is involved here. You know, we're going to continue this for one more segment. We've got lots of calls. If you're on the line, please hold on four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, if you decided you wanted to go to that Halloween party dressed like Mr. T, or you wanted to go on that gong show at your college dressed, you know, it's Gladys Knight and the Pips, and you're doing one of those routines, all right, th- does that mean you had to be racist? Was this hurtful? Should you have known better? And do you deserve to suffer consequences for that decision 40 years later? It's 1229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, I want to be real clear here. I'm not defending the governor of, of Virginia from this 1984 picture that he initially acknowledged was him, and now he says it's not him, where you're you're either dressed in blackface or wearing KKK robes. I, I, I There's clearly examples that would certainly be inappropriate. I'm having this larger conversation, though. I mean, if it's 1978, you went to a party dressed as one of the pips from Gladys Knight and the Pips, or it's 1981 and you go to a party dressed as Mr. T, because Mr. T was really big back then, and, and a picture of that circulates now in 2019, does that mean that you were a racist and you're incapable of holding public office? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Ajiri in Milwaukee. Ajiri, good afternoon. Ajiri? Okay, let's no, try. Oh, I'm sorry. Call back, Ajiri. Let's try Lori in Milwaukee. Lori, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Lori. Um, I don't think that if you uh, necessarily black dress as Mr. T, it's racist. But I also think that um, African Americans have been dressing up like Marilyn Monroe, Cher, different people, sure. and we never we never white our face. So 
I think you have to think about that. Yeah, I will tell you, I'll give you some examples, though. I mean, for example, Eddie Murphy, who I think is a great comedian. I mean, Eddie Murphy and Coming to America, he puts on white face and kind of does this shtick about an, an elderly rabbi or something, I think. So it it, it does happen, um, but, but not so he, as much. He's playing a character in a movie. It's not as if I'm going to a party, but I right. just think it's about being sensitive to other people. Um, I don't think that necessarily is being racist. So... Um, I think you have to think about how context matters, I guess. And and time, I guess that's all I'm trying to say. And I think, you know, timing matters. If if somebody did this in 2018 and wanted to run for office, I'd be rolling my eyebrows. But again, I'm just I'm trying to think back. And and if if somebody shows up as the Lone Ranger in Tonto at at a Halloween party in 1978, I'm having trouble saying that that means that person automatically shouldn't be able to hold public office in 2020 because right or wrong sensibilities were were different back then. That's that's that is true. You know, that that's very true. And I think you just have to look at the times. It's just like, you know, the the um, the flag, the Confederate flag. You don't, you know. Right. You that's, you know, that's a great point, Lori. Okay, so let's say, right, our sensibilities have changed on that. So let's say you've got somebody that in their high school yearbook in 1978 is posing with uh, a Confederate flag or something. You know, that's 1978. Does that mean 40 years later that they shouldn't be able to hold public office? And, and my argument would be not necessarily. You, you look at what they've done over that intervening 40 years and decide. Yes, I agree with that. No, thanks. And see, and I think that's the way you, you have to, that's the way that you have to look at it. And again, it, it's it's all it's all in the context. Okay, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Avery in Milwaukee. Avery, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Yes. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, the last two callers are, I think, been right, and I think it's we're not really saying that that these people are racist. What we're saying is that they're insensitive. Mm-hmm. And I think what what I would use as an example, I think it's a good example, is that you take this group of kids in Baraboo. The ones with the Nazis, with the Nazi slogan, the Nazi uh, right signatures. And you take that and you move that forty years from now, right? Right. And and any of those individuals who decide to run for public office, chances are they're not going to be able to get the job. It's going to haunt them, right? Yeah, it's because regardless of the time, it's just insensitive. And what I don't think you're really understanding, and, and you're, one of your callers made this point very clear, you're looking at it from a white person's mm-hmm. perspective. Whether it be 1954, 1979, 2019, it's very insulting for black Americans to see white people parading around in black oh, Okay, but, 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 no, but okay, how, can I ask you this? I mean, how old are you, Avery? How old are you? I'm 59. Okay, so I, let let us let us go back to let us go back to the 70s, um, and and I guess I just don't remember this issue being out there. Now 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 it clearly is. 
but I mean, I, I don't remember. I mean, th- this is not necessarily something that was uncommon. Now, I mean, I understand the, the old minstrel shows and stuff, but I, as you can see, there's lots of occurrences where, you know, you had people as part of the Halloween costumes or whatever who would dress up in this blackface. And, and I don't remember this uproar at the time from the African-American community saying, oh, th- this is this is racist. You went to this party dressed as Shaft or something like that. I, 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 I mean... Is it possible that standards have evolved over the years? The standards have evolved. Here's what's been talked about. This is the new narrative, and and it's very, very true. The the issue is is that oftentimes when white people dress up in blackface, Mm -hmm. black people are not around. Okay, You do that at the parties that you have in your homes. You do that in your sororities and fraternity parties. And therefore, black people don't get to see the insult. So back in the 70s, a lot of that was going on. I do believe that it was going on, but black folks just didn't see it. Now that you have the Internet, now that you have these yearbooks that are coming out, and, and I, I would really, I'm willing to bet you that the yearbooks that you're going to be looking at are going to be yearbooks where there probably wasn't a whole lot of black students going to those schools. So, so what you have here now is, is just basically an understanding that and, and really we should all understand it no we're not saying that these people are racist after 40 years what we're saying is looking back did you have the knowledge and ability to make a decision that what you were doing was insensitive okay would well, you okay. think that the, do you think that again in 1978 standards that the high school kid who's going to the party dressed as mr. T do you think it was his intent to be insensitive or to be insulting? It depends. Well, I think you're right. It depends on the context. But sure. let's, let's, look, let's look at this. You're not going to see a white kid going to a party where there's African-Americans in blackface. I'll see. I, well, okay? Oh, you, you, don't, you don't. Oh, really? I don't know. You can, you can be Mr. T in whiteface yep. and shave your head and do all that you want. But. This, this is, this is really going to the heart of what a lot of people don't understand. And I'm hearing a little bit of it in you. This is, and I don't like to use this term, but it's there. It's this notion of white privilege that, that you just don't understand how serious it is when you do that. Well, I guess I understand. See, it's not a question of, thanks for calling everybody. It's not a question of white privilege, and it's not a question of understanding how, how serious it is. It's a question of, do our standards and our, do our mores change over the decades? And I, I think it's very, very difficult to say, to look back and say, okay, something that, that somebody did in 1975 when there was a different level of community standards. And I, I mean, I, and I guess that's the fundamental question was, should somebody in 1975 have understood that if you go to a party dressed as, uh, you know, Bill Cosby or, or or whatever, should you have understood that this was going to be, you know, offensive and hurtful and incredibly insensitive? Did the majority of African-Americans in 1975 view it in the context that I'm talking about? Again, I'm not talking about going with a Ku Klux Klan thing or something like that or, or dressed and, and doing the step and fetch it type of things. I'm talking about, hey, this person's a, a you know, this person's a, a superstar. It's the Michael Jacksons. It's the Gladys Knights. It's the whatever. And so, you know, we're going to dress up in this fashion. Would the average person, either white 
or black have understood that, oh, that this is going to be insensitive and people are going to be offended by it. I guess that's the fundamental issue that's out there. The Virginia governor, well, that that's that's a whole nother story. But this is the issue that I think folks are wrestling with. Now, moving forward, I think it's pretty clear. We all understand it's culturally insensitive to do this. It's hurtful. You, you shouldn't completely and totally unacceptable and this really isn't a defense of blackface it's just the comment of you know what what was a reasonable person and a reasonable reaction what would have been at the time that somebody did it and should somebody have understood that gee if i go and i'm dressed as tanto that that's going to be viewed as culturally insensitive and should 40 years later i be deemed to be i don't know somebody who's a, a racist or insensitive or hurtful or whatever it's 12:46. jeff wagner wtmj good conversation and uh, thanks for participating on facebook live as well Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Number of interesting texts on that conversation. Um, Let's see. Uh, Remember uh, one of our texters? I use Burt Reynolds' awesome line. If you knew me between 1985 and 1995, I'm sorry. Um, Somebody else. Hey, Jeff, remember the old sitcom Fred Sanford and Son? Fred Sanford repeatedly referred to whites as honkies. That was viewed as, as amusing. Um, you, you know, it's it, again, it, it's one of these things where if you go back and you and again, I, I'm not defending people who, who come on and behave in racist sort of fashions at all. And clearly you look at some of the stuff and some of these examples where you see people in blackface and you say ah, that you, you should have known that we obviously had a racist intent to it. And it's not funny, and it wasn't funny by 2019 standards, and it wasn't funny by 1975 standards. But what we've seen now is there's sort of a, an overall, let's go back and let's try to find stuff from 40 or 50 years ago, and we'll see if somebody behaved in an inappropriate, by inappropriate standards by 2019 definitions. And, and if so, then we say they, they can't serve. And at some point in time, especially especially in a lot of these southern states where there was perhaps more of a cavalier attitude towards what was racially inappropriate and what was not. I mean, you just look at what's going on in Virginia. You've got politicians dropping like flies because it seems like everybody either showed up in one context or another dressed in blackface or edited high school yearbooks where other people did. And the question becomes, you know, where do you really draw the line? Don't know if you're aware of the controversy involving uh, Channel 12. And this is... It's I, I bring it up just because the Milwaukee Police Department has has called them out. They now the story today, the tragic story is the Department of Public Works worker who uh, was killed when somebody drives into the back of their asphalt truck and then the driver is still at large. He gets out and tries to run like you know that's going to work. Well, the story before that, of course, that we continue to cover is the horrible story about the Milwaukee police officer, Matthew Rittner, who was uh murdered while executing a search warrant on Wednesday. Uh, One of the things that's always very difficult, and I made this conscious decision when I came on the air on Wednesday, it was a fluid sort of situation. Things were emerging. At that point in time, they hadn't announced the officer's name, although 
we, we knew it, hadn't announced a lot of the circumstances behind the tragic loss, although a number of us here knew it. And I, I just, I said at the time, I said, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to speculate. We're not going to be talking about some of the issues until more of the facts are, are made public because sometimes in this, this rush, you end up getting stuff wrong or you end up being insensitive or whatever. Well, that's that's kind of what happened with Channel 12. Here's the press release that the Milwaukee Police Department put out. This is from the police department. Milwaukee Police Department responds to tasteless WISN 12 article. Matter of fact, I, I, I almost never retweet things because a lot of times that's sort of how you get in trouble, too. But I, I did retweet this. So if you follow me at Jeff Wagner 620, I, I forward this on. Um, 28 hours after, this is the press release, 28 hours after Milwaukee police officer Matthew Rittner was tragically killed in the line of duty, WISN 12 posted an article on its website titled, Fallen Officer Named in Federal Civil Rights Lawsuit Filed After Carjacker's Violent Arrest. The Milwaukee Police Department finds this article to be tasteless, classless and insulting to the family of Officer Rittner, the entire MPD, and all those who mourn his loss. Out of respect to Officer Rittner's family members and loved ones, the Milwaukee Police Department requested to have this article removed from the WISN 12 website as soon as it was brought to our attention. MPD was advised that the article would be and was removed. It should be noted that our efforts to build trust and transparency, the Milwaukee Police Department has no interest in discouraging accurate reporting, whether uh, positive or negative towards our image. However, this attack has no academic value and was created solely to stir up controversy where none exists. Officer Matthew Rittner is a hero. He dedicated his life to serving the United States in the Milwaukee Police Department. Officer Rittner was killed as he was protecting and serving the people of our city while conducting a search warrant against an individual who was illegally selling guns and drugs. While it is factually correct that Officer Rittner responded to the August 2017 vehicle pursuit with several MPD officers and other law enforcement agencies, his role was thoroughly investigated by Internal Affairs Division, and he was cleared of any wrongdoing. Furthermore, several hours of body-worn camera video along with squad video was also reviewed pertaining to the incident and the officer responsible for the attack. What happened is you had a guy who fled from the police, led them on like a 20-minute high-speed chase. They ultimately caught him. A lot of different departments were involved, and there's an officer who came up, and while the guy was on the ground, kicked him. The guy who was kicked was injured. He's now doing, I think, six years for armed robbery, etc., etc. And he has filed a lawsuit naming all sorts of people, including the fired police officer and the Milwaukee Police Department and all these officers who were on the scene. Anyhow, um, the press release continues. Um, the officer responsible for the violent attack was criminally charged and is no longer a member of our agency. In fact, after the vehicle pursuit, Officer Rittner was one of the first officers to assist the defendant who was suffering from a medical crisis. While WISN 12 News Director Ben Hart did issue a statement apologizing for the insensitivity of a post on the Facebook page earlier today and notes that the particular story in question has been taken down, um, as of the release of this press release, the article headline still appears on a Google.com search and its content remains viewable on many devices. MPD once again expresses that the article written by WISN 12 was not only reprehensible, it was a dis- distasteful attack 
on the reputation of our fallen hero. And as, as I said when I retweeted the response from MPD, this is one of the reasons why people have a distaste and or a dislike for for the media. It's is it, is it as factually accurate, I guess, that the police officer was involved on the periphery of this incident, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever? Well, okay, I guess it's factually accurate. Does it have any relevancy to the overriding story? And the answer is absolutely not. And you have to wonder what they were thinking over at Channel 12 when they decided to rush this thing up onto the Internet. And MPD is calling them out for it, and uh, again, deservedly so, in my opinion. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. We are joined in the studio by my colleague, my teammate, my friend of a number of years, and the host of Wisconsin's Afternoon News, John McCure. John, you have a breaking news story you wanted to talk about. That's right, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me into the studio. Sure. Pretty big story today. I have in my hands a copy of a lawsuit that has just been filed and finalized in Milwaukee County Circuit Court, the Civil Division. Jason Hartland is a name that a lot of people won't recognize. Jason Hartland is a guy that was with the Milwaukee Bucks. His title was Managing Director, New Arena. Jason's job at the Bucks was primarily to secure big sponsorships, like the patch for Harley Davidson that the Bucks wear on their uniform, big signage. He was involved in landing the freighter deal for the uh, the training complex. The key thing he did was land the naming rights sponsor. It was Jason Hartland who was responsible for landing Fiserv Forum. That was his job, to be the naming rights sponsor. In this lawsuit filed today, Jason Hartland alleges that he should have been paid commission for that that he was made verbal promises. There were numerous meetings and numerous conversations with high-ranking members of the Bucks uh, that told him that he would be paid for this, that a commission was due. He left the Bucks for another position, and even afterwards, according to Jason's lawsuit filed today, was told he would be compensated for landing the naming rights to the new arena, and he says that never happened. And so he has filed a lawsuit. He is suing the Bucks, and specifically two of their executives, who he says didn't come through and paying him a commission, which he says he was due because he was the one that landed the naming rights for Pfizer uh, Forum. I've, I've had an opportunity to read through the lawsuit. Um, the plaintiffs in this case, he worked for the Brewers beforehand That's and right. left the Brewers, took a position with the Bucks for a few years, yeah. and then actually has, has gone back to the Brewers. That's the That's right. That's the situation. So, you know, this is a very specialized field, doing what Jason Hartland does. And your characterization is right. He was with the Brewers for quite some time. Uh, with the new arena opening up, he went to the Bucks, received an offer, and the blessing of the Brewers, by the way, to take this position with the Bucks. It was a great opportunity, a new arena, uh, career advancement. He took that, and then as the naming rights were becoming finalized, they were in high gear with Fiserv Forum, the Brewers created a new position. And so he applied for that position with the knowledge of the Bucks, according to Jason. He took that position with the Brewers, and then according to information I have and the lawsuit which I'm holding, he went to the Bucks, and he said to the Bucks, I have this opportunity with the Brewers, and the Bucks said, will you please stay with us until the naming rights is finalized? We're right in the middle of it. And then he went to the Brewers, and the Brewers said, no problem. We'll let you finish that up. That's important. 
He did finish that up, secured the naming rights according to the documents, and then went to that new position with the Brewers, which is where he is currently. And I think we should say, in fairness, these are contract matters. He he had a contract. I haven't had an opportunity to read it, and this is, and, and it all. It all hinges on interpretations of contracts and what were said yeah. between various parties. And does does somebody's commission rights to commission extend after you've left employment and and what was said? So that it, it's yeah. it's also very factual. It's fact based, and that ultimately ends up coming out in court what was said and what the exact deal was. So Jeff, you just hit at the crux of it because I've reviewed his contract, and I'm not an attorney, and it's actually an employment agreement, which is very similar to a contract. It says. That he is to be paid the commission, but if that he's not with the Bucks any longer, um, when this thing gets finalized, that he forfeits the commission. This is the basics of it. And he says conversations took place with numerous people that said, no, you're going to get paid for this. And as a matter of fact, he said, why would I continue to put the job with the Brewers on hold if I wasn't going to get paid for the additional work? So he says conversations took place with different members of the Bucks staff, reassuring him that they would do the right thing. And that they would pay him, and then he left. And the Bucks allege, according before, to the lawsuit, before the thing was finalized. That's right. right. That that because the that's right. It, when when you have a a big deal yep. like this, it takes months. You you get the agreement, and we have an understanding and principle, but it takes months exactly. to actually get the whole thing worked out. That's exactly and so right. He left in that interim between when the when the agreement was reached and when it was ultimately signed and sealed. Is what yes. I right. That's right. With the assurances, he says that he would be paid. For it. And he says it was um, him, Jason Hartland, that had the cell phone number of the CEO of Fiserv, that it was him that was on the phone late at night. It was him that secured the deal. He was the one that got it done. And the Bucks knew that he was doing that because they asked him to stay before going to the Brewers. He left before everything was finalized. And now he's saying, I was promised I should be paid for this, and I wasn't. And so he's seeking unspecified damages in court for money he says that he's owed. Do we have, even though the numbers aren't mentioned in the complaint, I mean, we have a rough idea of how much money we're talking about here? You know, I've heard from a couple different sources that it's well in excess of $500,000. I don't have the exact number. We don't even have the exact number yet. It's never been released on what the naming rights went for uh, for the new arena. So that's hard to tell. Uh, that, as you know, will come out as more documents are filed, and as this thing proceeds to trial, if it gets that far, we have reached out to the Bucks, and so far they have not made anyone available to talk about this. Uh, but I'm in contact with them; they have had no comment. As right. I mentioned, this was just filed, right? And so it's it's a matter that's going to be in litigation, and this is something that's ultimately going to determine on what was said and what the documents themselves say and what promises were made. Yeah, but Jeff, it's interesting because specific people mentioned in the lawsuit, so the Bucks are listed as one of the defendants, and then the CFO, Patrick McDonough, the chief financial officer of the Bucks, is specifically listed, and so is Matthew Pizarro, the senior vice president of business development and strategy. So this is at the pretty much the top of the Bucks food chain. And I'm sure you'll have more with this up on this later on in Wisconsin's Afternoon News. We will. Go to WTMJ.com right now, and you can actually see the lawsuit. It's filed. The lawsuit that's been filed. John McHugh, thanks for stopping in. Appreciate thanks, it. Jeff. It's 115. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
It's 118, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, uh, they have the, th- this is a lawsuit. It's a lawsuit filed by somebody who used to work for the Bucks against the Bucks, alleging he's entitled to various commission payments. It, it, it'll all be sorted out. There, there's employment agreements, which are like co- employment contracts. And you, if you want to read it, um, it's up at WTMJ.com. But we wanted to uh, bring it to your attention. John McCure developed that story. All right. I want to switch gears. This is, we're going to have a fascinating conversation in this country over the next couple years. You have this new wave of younger, uber-liberal Democrats who have been elected and now want to reshape this country. And we, we talked a couple days ago about how there, there, it, there, there was a time when it was just unthinkable that people would say, All right, we're, we are avowed socialists, and, and we want to move this country towards socialism. We want to move towards systems like you find in China and you find in Russia and you find in Venezuela. We, we want to adopt those type of things. Well, there was a point in time where that would be political suicide. Well, n- not so much anymore. You have a number of particularly young Democrats who are saying, yeah, this is exactly what we want to do. Capitalism isn't working. The free market system isn't working. It's resulting in economic inequities, and we need to change things. And so yesterday, a handful of Democrats led by the sort of firebrand um, state uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez unveiled what they called a Green New Deal. This is, of course, a takeoff on on FDR's New Deal that was designed to help bring the country out of the the Depression. And so this this is what they're saying. This is our goal, and this is what we want to do for in the next 10 years. And you have some Democrats, including some who aspire to be president after the 2020 elections, who are on board saying, saying yes, this is it. Now, interestingly... You have a number of other Democrats who've been around who wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole because they believe that this is this is extremism and that the American people aren't ready for it. But I have in my hands, I have the the Green New Deal. Um, here's what they're doing. All right. The, let me just share a portion of it with you. The Green New Deal resolution is a 10-year plan to mobilize every aspect of American society at a scale not seen since World War II to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions and create economic prosperity at all. It will move America to 100% clean and renewable energy. Okay, so this means no more fossil fuels. This means no natural gas. It means no coal. It means no nukes. Nothing. In 10 years, we will create millions of family-supporting wage union jobs. We will ensure a just transition for all communities and workers to ensure economic security for people and communities that have historically relied on fossil fuel industries. We will ensure justice and equity for frontline communities by prioritizing investment training, climate, and community resilience. Built on FDR's second Bill of Rights, we will guarantee... We will guarantee jobs with family-sustaining wages, family and medical leave, vacations, retirement security, high-quality education, including higher education and trade schools, healthy food, high-quality health care, safe, affordable, adequate housing, free economic environments, free of monopolies, economic security for all who are unable or unwilling 
to work. Let me read that last one again. Economic security for all who are unable or unwilling to work. So in other words, if my producer grew, who is a hardworking man, who works two jobs, as a matter of fact, finally decides, you know what, Jeff, I've had enough of this, and I just, I don't want to come in. (laughs) I'm tired of answering phones. I'm tired of running from this job to another job. I want to sit at home, and I want to watch TV. Well, this plan would guarantee you grew economic security if you are not just unable to work, but you are unwilling to work. All right. Well, I, I mean, I, I have this sort of question here. All right. If, if the government is going to guarantee economic security for all of us who are unwilling to work, but nevertheless, you could be economically secure and you could have free health care and you could have free college educations and and you have retirement security and you can be unwilling to work. My question is, why work? <laughs> I mean, why, why, why work two jobs? Why work three jobs? I mean, you're going to be guaranteed economic security. Who's going to work? All right. There are things continue. Americans love a challenge. This is our moonshot. When JFK said we'd go to the moon by the end of the decade, people said it was impossible. If Eisenhower wanted to build the interstate highway system today, people would ask how we would pay for it. When FDR called on America to build 185,000 planes to fight World War II, every business leader said it cannot be done. We can do this. And then it talks about a massive a massive government investment. Yes, they are calling for a full transition off fossil fuels and zero greenhouse gases. No nukes, etc., etc. Renewable energy. How will you pay it? How will you pay for it? The same way we paid for World War II. The Federal Reserve can extend credit to power these projects and investments, and new public banks can be created to extend credit. Um, there is also space for the government to take on an equity stake in projects. Okay, which in other words means the government is going to own them. Or we're going to have banks that are just going to print money to pay for all this stuff. It goes on and on and on. Now, it doesn't really mention the costs that are out there. That's because people don't ultimately want to talk about it because, I mean, just the health care aspect of this you're talking about over a 10-year period you're talking about you know 300 what 32 trillion dollars i just just for the health care alone but this is the idea this idea that we're we're going to remake america we're going to get rid of fossil fuels no more coal no more gasoline no more natural gas we're going to all be you know singing kumbaya with the renewable forms of energy we're going to guarantee economic security for people from cradle to grave including those who are unwilling to work all right does this sound great does this sound like the country that you really want to live in 414-799-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line again there are some some democrats who think this is the way to go that this is where this country is we want this and the people that are poo-pooing it well they're just dinosaurs stuck in the tar pit of history and there's a lot of other people, including a lot of Democrats, who are saying, this is nuts. 
414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, is now the time to remake America with the Green New Deal. 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. It's 127. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One thirty-six. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Um, I, I see a couple of public officials around here are, are using one word to describe the the events of this week, and that is surreal. And you know, I I think that that's an absolutely accurate. Word. When you when you think about that, from just the the bizarre weather, the the brutal weather that we've had, you know, for essentially going back like a week and a half now. So you've got the, the weather, which you could argue is surreal. You have the developments of Wednesday, the the tragic murder of a Milwaukee police officer. Number of people are are sending me notes saying, what exactly was it that WISN Channel Twelve did? If you follow me on Twitter, it's at uh, Jeff Wagner six twenty. I, I I retweeted what the Milwaukee Police Department their press release. They were very unhappy with the uh, uh, something that WISN did, which I think was incredibly classless and tasteless, and showed an incredible lack of judgment um, with regard to reporting on one aspect of the the, the life of of uh, Officer Rittner, who is by all stretches uh, just an incredible hero. So if you follow me, I, I retweeted the the link that the Milwaukee Police Department sent out. Then you have this 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 tragic story today that where you have. A guy who's working for the Department of Public Works, I don't believe they've released his name yet, 54 years old, struck at 8.15 this morning, a hit-and-run driver. Apparently, you know, he's, he's working on this asphalt truck. Somebody runs into the back of the truck um, in, in a car, hits and kills the worker. We don't have all the details. But then the, the car is presumably undrivable. The driver gets out, runs away. The police ha- have apprehended the passenger. There's a female passenger in the car. The car is on the scene. They've apprehended the passenger and just, you know, from a legal perspective. Now, I mean, I don't know if it's a stolen car or not, but they've got the passenger. They've got the vehicle. Where does the hit and run driver think he's going? I mean, at the end, I mean, where, where do you how do you think that this is going to end up? I mean, really, uh, you know, stay on the scene, accept responsibility, try to provide aid, do do whatever. Now, again, I don't know one of the reasons sometimes, and I want to speculate about this, one of the reasons, and it's an ongoing problem with hit-and-run situations, is if there's drugs or alcohol involved, sometimes what happens is the hit-and-run driver decides, well, I'm just going to take off, and even if they catch me, if they catch me six hours later or 12 hours later, I'll be sober by then. It, that That's always a failed strategy, too. That that never works but you know who knows what's going on here but the driver is at large but my guess is that's not going to last very long because my guess is they know the authorities know exactly who it is that they're looking for and then on top of all that weirdness you have a story that a number of people have asked me what could this be about and i honestly do not know (laughs) the the story dan bice from the journal sentinel is reporting that federal agents raided the Milwaukee County Register of Deeds office on Wednesday, taking away numerous documents. Okay, now, there's all sorts of offices in the courthouse where if you were thinking that maybe they could be subject to federal investigations, yeah, you could see that. But the, the Register of Deeds, I mean, the Register of Deeds keeps real estate documents, and they keep certified copies of birth records and death and marriage records. I mean, I, uh, I, I was there. I mean, you know, I after 
after Fran and I got married in, uh, I, I know, September September 29th. We got married September 29th of uh, 2017. After we got married, I, I needed... We, we needed certified copies of the marriage licenses for a variety of different things, name changes and stuff like that. So, I mean, I can remember going down to the Register of Deeds office and, and that, you know, they were very efficient. No, no problem. So I was actually there. I've been there to get certified copies of uh, death certificates a, as well. All right. So in any event, the, the feds apparently raided the office on Wednesday, taking various documents. The attorney for... The uh, Register of Deeds says, I have no comment uh, about that. One, according to Bice, one Democratic insider says, what the hell could he do? This is referring to the Register of Deeds. What the hell could he do in that office that the FBI would care about? And I I think that's, in general, a a very, very good question. So I'm just, this week around here, between the weather the tragedy involving the Milwaukee police officer, the tragedy today involving the hit-and-run accident in the Department of Public Works guy, and the FBI raiding the Register of Deeds office. If you were looking for one word to describe everything going on around here, I think surreal would be a good word. All right, let us switch gears. A number of years ago, we became, and this is collectively, the at, there, there was sort of an attitude shift when it came to people who were using drugs. And the concern was, well, look, we, we don't think people should inject heroin, for example. But, but if they're going to do it, what we want to do is we want to make sure they do it in the safest way possible. Forget for the fact that injecting heroin is not safe in and of itself. But the idea would be, you know, we're concerned about the transmission of diseases and things like that. We're concerned about dirty needles. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to provide needle exchange programs where drug addicts can come in and they can exchange their dirty needles and we'll give them clean needles so that, yeah, they, they might die from injecting drugs, but but at least it's not going to be because they have dirty needles. All right, so and this is really a small step from that. There's a number of different communities have said, okay, well, here here's what we do. If it's a good idea to have needle exchange programs, why isn't it an even better idea to make sure that the people who are injecting themselves with drugs – have people around them when they're doing this trained medical professionals for example who if if they get if they get bad heroin or if they overdose or something wouldn't it be better as opposed to having these people die of an overdose in some you know d- deserted alley wouldn't it be better if we had medical professionals who were on the scene to make sure that they were there when the person was shooting up so that they could, you know, again, help them out, make sure they don't, they don't die. All right. And so that's precisely what they were doing in Philadelphia. There's this nonprofit group in Philadelphia that was formed last year, and the purpose was to house the country's first so-called safe injection site in downtown Philadelphia at the site. And by the way, I'm not making this up at the site, a nurse practitioner or other medical provider would supervise and be ready to respond should anyone overdose after injecting drugs that they brought in. The site would also provide clean needles, wound care, 
legal services, and referrals to addiction treatment. So essentially you have medical and state-sanctioned use of, of drugs. I don't think under the rules that the nurse practitioner would be shooting you up himself or herself. But but I don't know why not, because they'd just be supervising. Um, Gru, no, you, you wanna you wanna probably use your other arm because the veins in your left arm are kind of shot. So I, I think you'll be able to find a better vein in your right arm. Why don't you try here? I, I'm not making this up. This is what they were going to do. Well, the story is the the Trump Justice Department has filed a lawsuit suing to stop this group from opening um, opening up this safe injection site. And predictably, um, you, you have a number of people, especially on the left, who are outraged about this, saying, don't you realize this, this is the future. This is the forefront of fighting opioid, uh, the opioid epidemic, providing a place where people can inject fentanyl, heroin, and other illicit drugs under medical supervision. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I know on this program from time to time we talk about whether in 2019 is a time to legalize marijuana and things like that, but that's not what this is. This is saying, all right, we are going to create essentially government-sanctioned spots where you will have medical professionals that will supervise you while you inject heroin or fentanyl or do whatever types of illicit drugs you want. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In, in, my, in my view, the, there's, there's no way to describe this except I, I think it's you know capital C crazy. Uh, but, I mean, I understand the appeal. The argument is, well, they're going to do it anyway, so don't you want to have a, a safe system to do this? Don't you want to have somebody that's on site to provide them Narcan or whatever it's they're going to need if they overdose? Right? Is this what we should be doing? It's not just giving out the, the free needles. It is having medical professionals that actually supervise people while they shoot up with heroin. 414-799-1620. And for those of you who are in the medical profession, you know, some of you nurses out there, I mean, is, do, do you want to, do you want to sit around and, and watch people inject themselves? I mean, is that what the medical profession is all about now? We discuss in just a minute. It's 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. And by the way, some of this news coverage, it's the Trump administration that is evil for trying to shut this down. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. <laughs> Forty-nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm willing to debate this point, but it seems to me that the the solution to the opioid crisis, which is enveloping this country, is not to normalize and standardize the the use of and the injection of illegal drugs. The, the way you solve the heroin problem isn't by saying, "Oh, let's set up warming centers where we have nurses that are there who will watch you while you shoot up, and they'll be present in case you overdose." Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with Donna in Oconomowoc. Donna, hello. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm frustrated. Um, I am too, and I see firsthand um, the methadone clinic. Let's start with in Waukesha. Hands out liquid methadone. Right. And they get take home, and um, 
I don't know how many are private pay, but there's an awful lot that aren't. And I know for a fact a lot of young ones that are that go to the methadone clinic. Right. You, and by the way, when they use other drugs, I'm not saying they never get kicked out. They don't always get kicked out. And uh, they, some of them sell the methadone and, uh, so they can buy other drugs. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I mean, thanks. So it's, it's interesting. Ever, ever since I was a young drug prosecutor, I, I've always, I, I mean, the, the, the way they, they get you off heroin is they, is they put you on methadone. And then I, I just, I had, I, we didn't prosecute that many heroin cases, but you'd have these people that would then be on methadone forever. And I always kind of wondered about the wisdom of substituting, you know, dependence on one substance for substituting a dependence on another substance because we decided that methadone wasn't bad. But it, okay, it's one thing if you're trying to get people off of drugs. It's another thing, though, to normalize the use of, of this type of stuff. And I, I mean, I, I just, just from an ethical standpoint, for these nurse practitioners and all, I mean, I, I thought the rule was, like, do no harm. You're going to sit there and you're going to watch people inject this poison into their arms by, and again, you you're normalizing the the use of these illegal substances. Mark in Greenfield. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hey, Hi, Jeff. Mark. How you doing? Good. What do you think? Good. Um, I just wanted to comment that uh, by doing this, you're pretty much taking the risk away from using an illicit drug like this. Um, using heroin, one of the biggest risks is, is overdosing, and that could cause death. If now I can use heroin and be supervised. Um, what's to stop me from using it more? What's to stop uh-huh. me from making it more popular? Oh, oh, yeah, no, right. There, there, there's no question. I mean, this, and that, that's what I was saying when I was using the word normalize. It says, okay, well, this is. I have a place to go. I don't have to worry about getting arrested. I don't have to worry about you know the dirty needles. I don't have to worry about any of this stuff here. I, I'm going to be here three times a day shooting up. I mean, it, it is is and from a societal perspective, do we want to normalize? You know the. Do we want to normalize heroin addiction? Do we want to normalize injecting, you know, phenytol? And, and my answer would be, I hope not. Now, thanks for the call. Marcus in Sussex. Marcus, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Marcus. Um, a few things. Uh, who's going to pay for this? Uh, next, are we going to see kiosks in the mall and on corners for alcoholics as well as uh, criminals uh, to cater to them and mm-hmm. help them out? Uh, I mean, when, when, where does it stop? When does it stop? Well, you would think it would have stopped a long time before normalizing heroin injection and stuff, but apparently, again, it it hasn't. I I thought, you know, Marcus, we should be all about trying to deter people from, you know, doing these types of things as opposed to making it easier for them to do these types of things. Correct. And, and, And also, I thought when you get your medical license, whether it's a nurse or a doctor, you take some form of oath and... Is that oath not in contradiction to this being I, performed and done? I, I mean, I you know, thanks. I I would think so. I mean, this is, you know, we we have this debate about physicians and assisted suicide and things like that. Well, this is, this is, I mean, I think it's even one step beyond that where you're just like watching people put this poison into their arms. Now, I get it. This is the next logical step from the, the needle exchange programs. But it, it's a it's a huge jump because now we're not just saying, okay, we know what you're going to do. We're, we're giving you this and we're going to just, we're going to kind of look the other way. We know you're doing this, but, but here's a clear 
clean needles so you, you reduce your risks. But now we're saying, come on in. It's warm. It's quiet. You sit in that chair here. You inject yourself. I mean, I, I do wonder how far this goes. I mean, if you've got a nurse practitioner there, what's she going to do when she sees somebody struggling to find a vein? Are you going to go there? Here, let me help you. You know, I, 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 back when I was in college, I dated a woman who's a medical technologist. Are you going to sit there and say, here, let me tap out your vein. I can find you the good one that you want to shoot through. Is this really the society that we want? Because it normalizes it. I, I think what it does is it increases the, the likelihood that people are going to do these drugs. And our goal should be getting people off of these drugs, you know, period. You know, no no question about it. So the Justice Department is now, again, they're being the bad guy because they're trying to insensitively stop us from doing this type of thing. I, I think I mean, this just shows through how far the looking glass that we've gone when you're seriously talking about essentially it, it's it's a private operation, but it, it's essentially legalized places where you can go and kill yourself with drugs. Hmm. 155, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So Eric Bilstadt, during your newscast, you, you just uttered four words that, number one, I never thought I'd heard come out of your mouth, and number two, I never I never want to have associated with my name, at least. <laughs> Below the belt selfie. <laughs> Yep, 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 yep. Is, is that one of these like new terms of art? There, a below the belt <laughs> yeah. selfie. Oh, okay. So what, what, what's this? Uh, Jeff Bezos, who yes, is the yes, yes. billionaire owner of Richest like the whole man world, in the world. Yeah, right? Owns who Amazon. Owns Amazon. Owns the Washington Post. Yes. Yes. Um, has been you know, violently anti-Trump and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the things that's got you know Trump going back and forth with the Washington Post. Okay. So so how do we get from the richest man in the world to below-the-belt selfies? <laughs> well, he's got a significant other that he spends a lot of time with, and they've taken some salacious photos, apparently, and uh, the National Enquirer got their hands on these photos. And there's been a back-and-forth suggesting that they were going to threaten him by posting the below-the-belt selfie, and here we are. <laughs> I... It's there's a whole nother world out there. I mean, I no, maybe this maybe this is this ju- has been going on forever, well, Jeff. Well, Pictures I, okay, like this. Oh, well, okay. They were talking about the richest man in the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. You know, we're 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 not we're not talking about all right some college kid that's sitting behind some computer, you know, and is all lonely on an eleven thirty on a Saturday night, decides to take pictures of his junk and send them out. Even the richest man can be lonely. We are talking about the richest man in the world. Take, now, taking all right. Now the other thing is, and see this, there, there's just so many different avenues that this goes down. I mean, who thinks this kind of stuff is chick bait? I mean, seriously. I mean, here I'm going to take these pictures and uh, you know, take a picture. I, I mean, send out your bank statement. That might be chick bait. <laughs> My guess is you'd probably attract a lot more than taking a picture of your junk. <clears throat> I don't know. I. I I just, but I, I I firmly believe I do not have any evidence of this, but I, I am certain that people have been taking pictures long before cell phones became a thing. I, all right, I had a case long time ago. All right, <laughs> okay, as long as we're going we go. down this route, right, let's go. To, all right, all right. Um, the guy was in air traffic. I take you back to the time of the air traffic controller strike. Okay. And I, I will I will shorten this story, but um, this is when I was in the attorney's office. The guy, air traffic controller strike, and if you recall, everybody that went on strike got fired by President Reagan. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't know, I guess it's, it's illegal to do that. Well, my guy decided to to stay in. I, I won't I won't name the airport he worked at, but it was an airport around here. 
Well, my guy, um, he, <laughs> if you, <laughs> where are you going? Okay, all right. Well, here's the deal. All right, so here's my guy. My, my guy. My guy. All right, my guy, the victim in in this case, the victim. If you ever used to drive up, maybe it's still the case, like forty one forty five between here and Oshkosh. You know, along the way, there's all these like dirty bookstores. You know, even to this day, there's these dirty bookstores. But back back in the seventies and eighties, there were a lot of these these places. You know, the the type of places that you go by, and it doesn't matter whether it's two in the morning or two at night. There's all these trucks that are in there. <laughs> okay, so my guy is going deer hunting one one time, and he stops off and he buys a bunch of these 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 dirty magazines. Okay. Okay, and one, I mean, I still remember the name. The name was, was called Wisconsin Swinger Magazine. Okay. And people would put ads in Wisconsin Swinger Magazine if they were looking to hook up. Now, this, ah, I understand. This is before Tinder. This is, right, okay. this is, right, yeah. this, this is before Al Gore invented the Internet. You know, back in the old days, you had to put classified ads in the, you know, the, the local weekly newspaper and stuff like that, or Wisconsin Swinger Magazine. Right. So, anyhow. All right, there. My guy, who's an air traffic controller, decides he's married, couple kids. Decides he's going to answer some of these ads, and the ads ask for photographs. Honest to God, this is a true story. My guy decides. Well, I'm not just going to send any photographs. I'm I'm an air traffic controller, and I'm going to I'm going to go over to the airport where I work. And it's one of these. I'm going to go. It's after, after it closes down at night. You know, pilot. I'm, I'm not making this up. You know, pilots have like a code. You can turn on the lights, but there's no. It, the, the tower isn't manned. So my guy goes over with his like Minolta camera and his tripod, and decides he's going to take some pictures of himself in the control tower at this airport. He also decides he's not going to take just any particular type I'm of pictures. About selfies. He strips down and takes a bunch of naked pictures of himself sitting at the control tower at this particular airport. Mm, okay. Now, as an aside, okay, I, I know myself. Me naked is not a pretty sight. Why this guy thought these photos were going to be chick bait <laughs> is absolutely beyond me. But he, he takes all these photos, and then he decides to send them off. Now... You would think if you're taking these nude photographs of yourself and answering these kind of ads and you've got a wife and three kids, mm-hmm. you would like get a post office box and use a phony name. Uh-uh, not my guy. Hi, I'm Eric. Wasn't Eric. But hi, <laughs> hi, I'm Eric. I'm an air traffic controller at, and I can fly anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. And he sends these off. He sends these things off. Well, okay. <laughs> this is how I get involved in the U.S. Attorney's Office. The scene switches, and um, there was there was a guy – who was trying to start his own version of Wisconsin Swinger magazine. <laughs> and he, want, it, it, <laughs> he wanted to get a mailing list. And he figured the easiest way to get his like like version of the magazine off the ground is if he had a mailing list of people who were into this. Oh, sure. So he was yeah. putting phony ads in the existing magazine. And when people would answer him, he'd use them for mailing list stuff. He'd, okay. Oh, so that's where your buddy... All right, so sense. my guy, oh, wow. now, now, now the defendant... Happened to apparently know, he must have really known how to write an ad that appealed to this air traffic controller because my guy answered, complete with photos, seven of the phony ads. Seven of them. All right? So it's the air traffic controller strike, the ultimate defendant. He gets these pictures. And my guy's, hi, I'm Eric. It wasn't Eric, but hi, I'm Eric. I'm an air traffic controller. I'll fly anywhere. And my 
the extortionist immediately realizes that there's more than mailing list value to this. And so in what was the second day of er- worst day of Eric's life, he he gets these letters at Timmerman. At, it wasn't Timmerman Field. It was another field. But he, he gets these letters and the letters say, hi, I've got this photo. It's got one of his nude photos. I've got this and I've got several of these other photos that are here. Unless you give me ten thousand dollars. I'm going to the FAA, oh, no. your boss, whatever, and tell them what you've been doing. Extortion. Extortion. Oops, oops, oops. So after a long, like, 30 minutes of pondering, Eric's considering, should I go to Mexico? What's going to happen? He goes in and tells his boss. The boss calls the FBI. The FBI calls us, and we get involved. Want to know the other interesting aspect <laughs> of this story now that we're going? Okay. So the, the drop for the $10,000 it was going to be at the back of one of these airports. And so the FBI agent is out there. We take a paper bag. We put ten grand in it. And it was supposed to be put in a – there was like a Heil dumpster. And put, 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 the instructions were go out at midnight, put the, take $10,000 in cash, put it next to this trash can next to a Heil dumpster in the back of this airport. So the FBI agent goes out there. It's raining. It's raining like heck, okay? Drop the money off. About 10 minutes later, a car pulls up, woman gets out, picks up the $10,000. It turns out that these are two hookers that have been hired by the extortionist ah, okay. to go okay. pick up the money. Now, you want some free legal advice from recovering attorney, Eric? Yes, okay, please. my advice is if you're planning an extortion scheme, do not hire hookers to go along with this because they tend to be an unreliable sort. <laughs> And once we explain to them that they're now looking at 25 years in the federal pen for conspiracy to this, oh, they they immediately, figuratively speaking, roll over on the guy. And okay, okay, all right. Now here's the other aspect. So these are these are these are my witnitnesses, right? So we're going we're going to trial now. One, I'm a young lawyer at the time. One of the things they always tell you is that you want you you want your witnesses to like you. It, it doesn't matter. They need to trust you. Right, right, exactly. It, it doesn't matter what you think of them. You want to build up a rapport and stuff with that. So with one of these two hookers, the more wholesome one, I might add, I apparently did too good a job of that because, true story, for the next eight years, she sent me a Christmas card wow. every year. Oh, you go, well, you try explaining to your wife why you're getting a Christmas card from a hooker in Minneapolis every year. <laughs> just, Happy New Year. Uh, b- bottom line is, oh, gosh, I, I'll never forget it. The jury, the, the, oh, the, okay, so the, the guy ends up testifying. This was in federal court. The trial was in front of the late Terry Evans, a federal judge, and and. But now, nowadays, it's all technology, and you know, you got you put everything up on screens. Back then, I've got the Polaroids. I mean, I've got I've got the I've got the pictures that were sent, and I've got this poor guy sitting up on the witness stand. Mm-hmm. And you know, the way you authenticate a witness is an exhibit. I said, "Okay, Mister So and So, I'm going to show you government exhibits 101 through 107. Do you recognize them? I do. What are they? They're me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and then you request permission to publish them to the jury, which just means you pass them out. Sure, yeah. So he's sitting on the witness stand. The jury. Ten women, ten, two men, and passing them out. And I'll never forget. There was kind of this. Uh, there was this kind of middle-aged woman who was sitting in the front row, and I'm kind of watching her out of the corner of my eye because you want to wait till everybody's seen the exhibits sure, yeah, before yeah. you go on with the questioning. And she's looking at the photos. And then she'll look up, and she'll look up at Eric. <laughs> and then she looks back at the photos. Does another spin through. She starts to get the giggles. 
and, and pretty soon everybody on the jury is getting the giggles. And it, it's like everybody in the courtroom is kind of like laughing except me, you know, the the victim of the yeah, extortion yeah, yeah. scheme, etc. So um, there's that, a moral to this. There, story. There's a moral to the story, which is below the belt selfies. Whether you're, you know, an air traffic controller in this area in 1970, whatever, or you're the richest man in the world, just don't do it. It doesn't work out well. All right, 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There's apparently going to be a press conference in about 10 minutes with the mayor to be talking about the um, Department of Public Works worker who was killed this morning. Um, We've been providing you continuing coverage of that. About 8.15 in the morning, a guy was 54-year-old DPW guy from the city of Milwaukee, was working on, on an asphalt truck. I assume they were filling potholes or things of the like. And a car pulled up, and apparently the car hit the back of the asphalt truck and, and ran over the worker. The driver of the car abandoned the car and fled, and at least as of last reports, was still at large. Now, I I don't know if the car was stolen or not, but they, they have the female passenger who was in the car. So my, I assume that authorities know who this is, and they'll catch him at some point in time. But... Um, the mayor is going to be having a press conference in about 10 minutes. We will bring that to you. It might delay the start of our regular Friday afternoon feature, Pop Culture Corner, but obviously this is something that we want to focus on. Now, a number of people are emailing me saying either, I know that story, I knew that guy, or is that all true? Uh, actually, that that is pretty much all true. There's a lot of different Wagner's rules that come from that story, and it, it, it does start with, okay, Never take, what do we call them now, below-the-belt selfies of yourself. Nothing good is going to come of that. You know, it, it is, it's Wagner's rule of life number four, that unless you're a porn star, and maybe even then, you know, nothing good comes from taking nude photographs of yourself. That's really where that that story, that rule first originated back in 1981 or 1982 or whenever we ended up doing that that case. But, but you know, there's other rules as well, and I'm, I'm very serious, if... If you are considering getting involved in an extortion scheme, I would advise not to hire hookers to go along with it. They tend to be unreliable when faced with problems. That's always a truism as well. You know, one of the things that's going on here, and um, with the, the weather that we have had, and with the, the rain and the freeze and stuff like that, uh, pothole season is early today. I, again, I think the mayor's probably going to be talking about this more, but my sense is that the DPW worker, I think that's what he was doing when he was hit and, and, and killed so tragically today. Um, there's apparently all sorts of large potholes which are popping up all over the area. Um, CBS 58 reporting there's two giant potholes that apparently have uh, emerged in the 8900 block of uh, North Green Bay Road out in Brown Deer. These potholes have been swallowing up cars. Uh, Potholes have damaged tires on at least four vehicles that the police are aware of. They've got barricades in place, and, you know, people are notifying these things. But but the bottom line is, in addition to all the other bad stuff going on in the roadways, with the weather and all, pothole season is on us big time. So be very careful when you are out and about. You don't want to screw up your car if you possibly can. Let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. It's 2.20. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 2.36, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Yeah, we're going to call an audible here. Normally, this segment of the program, every Friday, we kind of lighten things up and 
do something we call Pop Culture Corner. We're gonna we're gonna skip that today. We're awaiting a press conference by Mayor Barrett. If you just are tuning in for the second time in three days, a a public worker, an employee of the city of Milwaukee, has lost his life. Of course, the the story everybody's familiar with is Wednesday morning, you had Officer Matthew Rittner, who was a member of the tactical squad, who was killed while executing a search warrant. The the man who is responsible, or believed to be responsible, allegedly responsible for the shooting, has been in custody. The case is in front of the district attorney's office. I would have guessed that they would have had some sort of court appearance by now, but We'll, you know, we'll, we'll see if that's planned. I mean, you can only hold somebody in custody for so long without at least bringing some preliminary sort of charges unless the person waives that. So who knows exactly what's been going on. But I would anticipate there'd be some formal charging, at least on a preliminary basis, to be happening sometime soon. So you've got that all going on. And then you have the news this morning, about 8.15, a DPW worker was working, I, I assume, filling potholes or something like that. It was an asphalt truck. The truck was struck by a vehicle, and the driver of the vehicle abandons the vehicle and then flees, at least as of the report so far. The driver was at large. I don't know if they've caught him or not, but they do have the car. They do have a female passenger who was in the car. So my, my guess is the authorities, if they haven't already caught the person, know who that they are looking for. But the you've got a 54-year-old man who worked for the Department of Public Works who has been killed. So this is the second second public employee in Milwaukee in three days that has lost their life. And I, I know it's a difficult time for a lot of public employees. It's also a difficult time for the mayor. Look, I've known Tom Barrett for a long time. And while we disagree on policy matters here and there, there's nothing there's nothing worse than having to, uh, again, talk to the people that work for your city and their family members and, you know, address concerns like this. And it is something that, that, that kind of makes you mindful. It's one, it's one of the reasons we have all these rules in the state about well, how you're supposed to, you know, give a wide berth to, you know, public employees who are doing their jobs, whether it's deputy sheriffs that have cars stopped on the freeway or um, in Milwaukee police that have people stopped in lines of traffic or people that are just going about, you know, doing work like construction repairs and things of the like because they're, they're exposed and they are um, in some danger. So uh, we'll, we'll wait. we're awaiting the press conference, the mayor. It's supposed to be any minute now. Uh, good news. This, this is something that is actually inciting. I think it, it's kind of exciting. It is before your time, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, but before there was Pfizer Forum, before there was the Bradley Center, there was the Mecca. And before it was the Mecca, it was the Milwaukee Arena. Now it's UWM Panther Arena. It's where UW plays. But there was a time when when the Milwaukee Bucks played there, and it was the Mecca, and it had this you know great floor that you've probably seen designed by I think a, a famous art was Robert in Indiana, I believe, it was a few, famous designer. And and I think you know the Mecca. I, I mean the Bradley Center was great. The the Buck the Mecca is smaller. It seats what ten or eleven, twelve thousand people or whatever. But, you know, then you had the Bradley Center, and now you've got Pfizer Forum. But for, for those of us who grew up around here, that the Mecca has always had kind of a fond spot in our heart. Well, the, the whole downtown area around Pfizer Forum, that, that Bucks Entertainment Block, and I, I was somebody who supported 
the expenditure of public funds to help build Pfizer Forum. And one of the, the things that I always was saying is it's it's not going to be a question of whether Pfizer Forum is a success. Whether or not that money is going to be well spent is whether or not that area surrounding the forum develops. Does it develop with commercial buildings? Does it develop with retail buildings? Does it develop with, uh, again, living space and things like that? Does it revitalize that area? And I think the early indications are it's done exactly that. I, I, I've not been to a Bucks game yet this year, but I have been to most of the Marquette games. And you go down there and you just see the way that whole entertainment block is is developing. And you've got, of course, you know, you know Good City Brewing, which is down there. Well, the, the, the announcement yesterday is that there's a new sports bar opening in that entertainment block across from the Pfizer Forum. The Mecca Sports Bar and Grill will open in an 11,500-square-foot space in the same building as the Good City Brewing Building. Um, it's going to be devoted to all sports, but the Mecca name references the arena where the Bucks played for 20 years, and I think it's going to be, again, they say it's going to be a, a major attraction that's going to be down there now they're not going to apparently have the old floor which is somewhat unfortunate but at the same time i think it's going to be uh, again one of these things that kind of ties in the the past of the bucks with the present of the bucks and the future of the bucks and i think that is so very very cool and i'm kind of looking forward to april and playoffs and hopefully the thing will be open and you go to a couple playoffs games and you stop at the mecca sports bar beforehand how cool is that let's take a very quick break it's 242 jeff wagner wtmj all right we now have the mayor at the podium this is mayor tom barrett the family of city employees has suffered another tragic loss today the second tragic loss in less than three days. Earlier this morning, a city public works employee was struck by a vehicle and killed at 17th and Vine while he was doing his job. He was on a crew that was involved in street repair work. In fact, he was filling a pothole. And he was standing directly behind the truck following normal procedure filling this pothole when a car hit him and hit the truck. Brian Rodriguez started his career with the city in June of 2017 as a city laborer. He demonstrated great flexibility and earned promotions. So not only did he work on street, on potholes, he was involved in snow removal as well. This is a difficult situation. The loss is difficult for his family, his wife, his children, the whole DPW team, and the entire city of Milwaukee. The city employee assistance plan is working with the Department of Public Works to make sure employees are taken care of. Employees will also be reminded of the availability of other internal and external support services, including care for 24 hours per day. The employee assistance plan will also be available to conduct individual meetings with employees as necessary. By the nature of their work, our street repair crews are exposed to potentially dangerous situations. What we can do, what every single person in Milwaukee can do, is slow down, 
be cautious, and pay attention to the road. This was a normal procedure that is done by City of Milwaukee Department of Public Works employees every single workday. It should not result in the death of an individual. But through carelessness, or whatever happened, Mr. Rodriguez has lost his life. Tragedies like this are emotional for everyone. We've been in communication with the police department. They are making progress in this investigation. And I'm hopeful that those who are responsible for his death are held accountable. The police have informed me that there is a subject in custody. I'd also like to thank the Milwaukee Fire Department for its life-saving efforts and the Milwaukee Police Department for its ongoing investigations. Now, this happened on 17th Street, which is a busy street. It happened between 8 and 9 o'clock this morning. If you are a witness to this, if you can please call 935-7360 to aid in the investigation, that would be helpful. Again, any witness to this who's on 17th Street this morning, if you call 935-7360. As I said earlier, this is the second tragedy in essentially three days. The people who serve this city, whether they work for the police department, the Department of Public Works, the Department of Neighborhood Services, the Fire Department, the Health Department, the library, interface with the public on a daily basis. And tragedies like this should remind all of us that our public servants, people who are here to make this a better community, deserve our respect and support, particularly at a time like this. So I'm asking you to please keep Mr. Rodriguez's family in your prayers at this time. Jeff Polinski um, in the Department of Public Works, I'd like to ask him to say Mr. Commissioner. And this is Jeff Polinski, who's the Commissioner of the Department of Public Works. It's been a rough day. Um, not, not something that you wake up every morning and expect to happen. Um, but I tell you, you know, in, 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 in these tough times, um, our condolences certainly go out to Brian's family, uh, their friends, uh, his co-workers. Um, you know, we, we, we're all grieving as individuals uh, for Brian. Um, we're grieving as a department, and uh, we're grieving as a city. This has been a rough day, a rough week for, for the whole city. And I um, certainly want to give my thanks to uh, the Milwaukee Police Department, Milwaukee Fire Department, um, and also the staff at Crater Hospital. Um, uh, wonderful people uh, that uh, were there uh, taking care of uh, Brian and his family. Um, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly be moving forward here in the days to come and, and certainly keeping uh, Brian and his family and friends in our, in our close thoughts and prayers. So, thank you. Much more to report if there's any questions. Can you talk about what Mr. Rodriguez was like as a person 
I think we'll wait. That'll come out, I'm sure, in the next few hours. I think right now the family is gathered together. We just left them at the medical examiner's office. I think they're just trying to, to compose themselves. Yeah, it's been very difficult. Shocking, shocking, shocking. Mayor, there was a procession, uh, correct? Yes. Tell me about that. Well, unfortunately, this is, and tragically, it's something that we've done now twice this week. Just, just as we had police officers um, with Officer Rittner um, accompanying him from Frederick Hospital to the medical examiner's officer, office. We had employees of the Department of Public Works, um, different trucks that were there to, to bring Mr. Rodriguez to the medical examiner's office. So his family, employees, um, others were involved in that as well. And it's, it's a sign of respect. It's very much a sign of respect for an individual who served this community very well. You've asked for people to come forward. Uh, can you tell us more about what you're hoping people will do? May have witnessed this on their way to work. Or... Well, again, I, I was at the scene, and and at the scene, um, it looked like many car accidents that occurred in this city. The, the truck was there, and the vehicle was still there, right up against it. And clearly, what happened was the car didn't stop with the truck, and and. This is very, very basic. You see a city of Milwaukee truck in front of you, you get out of that lane. And that, that did not happen here. That did not happen. Um, and I, I know we'll find more about whether there was an attempt to stop. That investigation is occurring right now. Uh, but this should be a, a signal to everyone, again, just how dangerous it can be when you've got public employees who are working in our streets to make our streets more passable. Uh, and, and that's what happened. We're hoping, obviously, to find out from the individual or individuals involved um, what was going on. I don't know. I don't know anything more. Anything I'd say now would be speculation as to what they were doing and what they were doing. Mayor, Last question. Is the passenger of the car the one that's in custody and the driver still has been driving? Um, I There's believe. No I will follow her. Mayor, can you just talk about? We've never, I've never experienced anything, and I'm sure no, no one here has ever experienced this. This is not something you don't want to see this happen once in your career. Um, you don't want to see it twice in your career, and, and nobody wants to see it happen like this. This is um, pretty unbelievable right now. Two fifty-two. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. That's the mayor's press conference. I guess they. One of the questions is, he, he said there was an individual in custody, and I had initially assumed that that was the driver of the car. Earlier reports indicated that the driver had fled and the, the passenger in the car was in custody. I can't tell from the mayor's remarks whether everybody that they're looking for is in custody or whether they've got one person in custody and they might look, be looking for other people. That's, that is is unclear. He was about to answer it, and I think his press person said no comment. So. Um, we, we don't know for certain what's going on there. They are saying that if anybody was in the area and has information, they're encouraging you to call, and the number is 414-935-7360. Again, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough week in the city of Milwaukee with what happened two days ago with uh, Officer Rittner and, and now today 54-year-old guy. And this is, you, know, you understand, if you're a police officer, 
or you know a first responder or a firefighter, you, you understand there's an inherent element of, of every morning when you go to work, you think, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm going to get into a situation where we're going to be confronting some violence and all. In this particular case, 54 year old Mr. Rodriguez, Brian Rodriguez, is he, he's 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 working behind a truck, you know, filling in potholes or or whatever. It, it does show you that there's danger to all these jobs, but it's not necessarily a job that you think of as as being ha- hazardous, except he's out on the roadways and you have somebody who's inattentive or doing whatever and as a result he has lost his life all right 253 when we come back i know john mccure has a full show coming up on wisconsin's afternoon news please stick around this is jeff wagner